0: Hello, I'm Alexander Rose, the Executive Director here at the Long Now Foundation. At Long Now, we work on projects that operate on the scale of thousands of years or more. Most of you have probably already heard about our 10,000-year clock or the Rosetta off-world language archives. But fewer of you may know about our bristlecone pine grove in eastern Nevada. These bristlecone pines are among the oldest living organisms in the world. That's why we partner with the scientists from universities in Nevada and Arizona to study these trees. By looking at their tree rings and correlating it with other data sets like ice or sediment cores, we learn crucial information about the last 10,000 years of our planet's climate and ecosystems. Today's speaker also deeply understands the long-term value of studying trees. Dr. Suzanne Simard is a professor of forest ecology at the University of British Columbia and the leader of the Mother Tree Project a project that encapsulates the spirit of long-term scientific research. Not only is it a study designed to collect data for a century, it's also a study focused on long-term phenomena, the ways that trees communicate and share resources with each other as they grow over hundreds of years, a phenomenon that Suzanne herself helped discover the scientific mechanisms behind. Before we take a journey into the fascinating world of tree communication, a small ask of our listeners. If you like our podcast, please tell your friends about it. We rely almost exclusively on word of mouth to grow our audience. And so anytime you rate or leave a review of the podcast on your platform of choice, or tell a friend about an episode that you've been thinking about, it helps us nurture this long-term thinking movement. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the Internet. They help people start Internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. And with that, let's hear from Suzanne Samard.
1: Hello, it's an honor for me to be here. My name is Dr. Suzanne Samard. I'm a professor at the University of British Columbia and a researcher. I'm here to talk to you today about mother trees and how I discovered their importance in forests and how they contribute sort of to what I'm calling the wisdom of the forest. So before I start, I just want to acknowledge, first of all, that I am giving this talk and most of my research is on the unceded territory of a number of First Nations here in Canada. I'm actually in Nelson, British Columbia right now on the unceded territory of the Tanaha Sinaiaks and the Okanagan Nations. When I do my work in Vancouver, which is where I teach, and where my university is, um, the, that is the territories of the Musqueam, the tsleil and the Squamish First Nations. In British Columbia, there are almost all of the territories unceded territory, so it's very important for us to acknowledge the land on which we live. I'm actually a settler, I come from a settler family, but I work with First Nations and their wisdom has contributed enormously to what I'm about to tell you today. Um, And also to all of our livelihoods, and will be in our future. And I think that you'll (laughs) you'll see that as I go through my talk. So I'm going to give you some context, like what drove me to do the research I did. My own background as a, a child of British Columbia, and I grew up here in a logging family, a horse logging family. I grew up in forests that were are called inland rainforests. These are amazing forests. They're what you would call biodiversity hotspots in the world. They're also hotspots for carbon storage, and they're also the source of our clean air and our clean water here in British Columbia, and it flows all the way down through through North America. So the value of these forests is beyond Anything we imagined even 50 years ago, now we understand, you know, how crucial they are in our global world and the changing global world. So I grew up in these places and my research really started from when I was a child and it's just moved forward and trying to understand how they work and how we can, how we, we can honor them and their wisdom to help us to live in a happy and healthy environment. When my family came to North America, they eked out a living and they did it through selective harvesting. So that what that means is that they would take out you know, certain species and certain sizes of trees, and then left the forest to regenerate itself. There was no planting back then. It was just that the, the logging was such a light touch that the trees were able to reseed into these small gaps created by the harvesting and then become a forest. It just seemed like that my grandfather and my uncles were all part of the forest and the forest grew up around them and we grew up around the forest. And so that's how I got to know it. So everything was very labor intensive and very, very, very slow. And that's so important because as they did this work, it was a very light touch on the landscape. It was very much, you know, you just take what you need and then leave the rest. This is a photo here of my grandfather and my uncles on what's called a, it's a log boom in what was called the Chuck Narrows on the Shuswap River. They were regularly crushed in these logging adventures and they would have to break up these log jams with dynamite. They would lose their hands, their fingers. Almost all of my uncles and grandfathers and great uncles had missing fingers. It was a pretty exciting way to grow up. And so I actually followed in my grandfather's footsteps when I was uh, in my teens, you know, girls weren't actually allowed to go into forestry. We were, um, you know, we were supposed to go into nursing or education or something. And so um, it was kind of an unusual pathway for me. And I was really lucky at the time that that UBC, where, where I went to university had just opened its doors to girls. And I was able to start out doing forestry. And this is me when I'm in my early twenties working for a logging company. So that would have been in the late seventies and then the early eighties, the whole logging practices had shifted. And they shifted from this small scale horse logging, family operations to big industrial clear cutting. And so that's how I started out my career is, is looking at big industrial clear cutting, which was so different than what how I'd grown up. And right now in British Columbia, we're really grappling with the fact that we only have 3% of our iconic old growth rainforest left. Going back to my own neighborhood my own, where I grew up. This is the Shushwap River where my grandparents, the Samard family had homesteaded, but it had become a place of clear cutting as well. And that you can imagine the impact that would have had. And the changes are cumulative and we're seeing that signature on the landscape now. This is, an, is actually a picture taken about 15 years ago of what our landscape looks like. So I grew up in a, in a landscape of old growth forests British Columbia, Western Canada, and I would say the west of of the United States as well, has shifted from a landscape of old-growth forests to a landscape of clear cuts, with only small pockets of old-growth forests that are left. There are huge implications for that. We've converted these old-growth forests to plantations, and this is what these plantations look like. Clear cutting means taking away all of the trees, and then they're replanted to one or two species in this case, Douglas fir, this is a monoculture, meaning one species, and then they're cultivated or weeded and tended to get rid of all the other, or as many of the other plants as possible to favor these trees, with the idea being that if you get rid of the native plants, then all those resources will be available to grow big, fat trees. Of course, as I moved along in my career, I eventually became a researcher. And one of my jobs was to figure out how to grow plantations. And then if there's something wrong with them, what the heck is wrong with them? And what can we do about it? And as I started working on this at the time in the early nineties, I was working in the Ministry of Forests, the government, and that was also when the mountain pine beetles started coming through and we started noticing that in these plantations. So this is a plantation of lodgepole pine in a subboreal spruce forest where the beetle has specifically attacked and killed those planted lodgepole pines. And why is that the case? Well, the problem here is that was planted one species in a sea of a multi-species forest. And so it was like a had a target on its back for the beetle. It was exactly what the beetle wanted. It was a simplified forest that had been weeded to grow bigger, faster lodgepole pines that were the host to the beetle. And I've done many studies since then to show that we have like about 50 different damaging agents in these kinds of forests now that are basically chewing their way through and as climate is warming up, we found that it's getting worse and worse. I started to do some research on what's going on in the soil. So there are big pathogens that were killing forests, and a lot of those big pathogens attack big roots of old trees. But we were also noticing trees dying in plantations, of course. And so I went back to school to try to figure out what had we done to create this imbalance in the soil and among these fungi that would make the forest more vulnerable. And so I was looking at a smaller subset of fungi, mycorrhizae. And these fungi, they're mutualists. That means that they help the trees grow. They don't decay them, they don't infect them, or they don't cause them to decline. And so I started studying this in our forests. The first work that I I did on looking at connections and communications between trees As I started with a complex system. A simpler system would be to work with one species, but I was working with two because I was interested in how we were manipulating these species. And I worked with three, actually I worked with Douglas fir, paper birch, and western red cedar, which are all native species in my forests. And Douglas fir is the one that foresters want because it brings top dollar. Paper birch is considered a weed, and so it's actively managed against. It's actually weeded out of forests using herbicides and anything we can get our hands on to get rid of that pesky plant because it's supposedly stealing from Douglas fir, resources, light water, and so on. And then the third species was Western red cedar, which of course is a a really valuable species for lots of reasons, but to foresters, it wasn't at that time. It was considered a pesky species even though our first nations consider it they actually call it the tree of life um, because of all of the benefits it provides to ecosystems as well as people but But in the forestry world at the time, it was considered a weed as well. But I used the three species to look at communication and connection because they all had different roles in the ecosystem. And through many years of studies with my students and and others, determined that throughout our forests, throughout the world, that trees depend on these mycorrhizas and that these plants actually are networked together into a single unit by these fungi. That all of the trees all over the world with their mycorrhizal fungi actually are connected together. We're also able to detect defense enzymes and how when a tree is injured, like a mother tree gets attacked by the mountain pine beetle, what kind of messages is that tree sending to to neighboring seedlings? And so we're able to actually detect these enzymes that end up uh, in the neighboring plants and how the the RNA and the DNA is upregulated in response to the, those enzymes so that these neighboring plants can actually upregulate and def- produce their own defense enzymes as well. At the time, there was a lot of skepticism about this. I published a paper in Nature that went into what these connections meant to the forest. And there was a lot of skepticism that that these things didn't actually exist in nature or they weren't important. These fungi, you can't see them with the naked eye. Um, even the, a microscope, even though you can see them on the root tips, you can't actually see how these threads move or travel through the soil. And so eventually we got uh, molecular tools where we could actually, you know, identify fungi based based on their DNA sequences. And we went into a forest of Douglas fir, a, a simple forest, you know, it was a native or primary forest. That means that it had never been logged. And so we went in and we wanted to map the fungi and the trees. In this map, the circles in the figure represent trees, and the bigger the circle, the, the bigger the tree, and the darker the circle, the older the tree. So the oldest trees in this little forest are about 300 years old. And the youngest trees, which are the little yellow circles in the middle, are about 10 years old. And so it's a multi-aged forest based on this figure. So we call those uneven age forests. And you can see there, there's about 60 trees in this forest. Um, and then the lines that are linking these different circles or these trees together are the fungal genus or the individual fungi of two species that we were tracking. And these two sister species were basically linking all of the trees together. And the biggest, oldest tree, which is up in the upper right-hand corner of the figure, was actually, of the 60 trees, was linked to 47 other trees. And so it turned out that every tree was linked to every other tree through a series of hop, skips, and jumps. And so this map alone just completely transformed how people were viewing forests at the time, which was that trees were individuals that that competed for resources and that competition isn't the only thing that's happening in these forests, that there's a lot of collaboration going on and that collaboration, one of the vectors for that collaboration are these mycorrhizal linkages. The one thing to notice is that these little trees, these little yellow seedlings that you can see here, these 10 year olds, when the seed falls from the old trees, these old big old 300 year old trees, the seed falls to the forest floor, it germinates you know, as soon as it germinates, the seed will send a hypocotyl down into the soil, which starts sending signals to the other roots and fungi and critters, bacteria in the soil. There's a huge communication going on, a chemical communication. Basically, they just link into the network of the old trees they become part of this big woven quilt. Those seedlings suddenly have a huge resource available to them. They've got the resources of their elders. They they also, just by having the mycorrhizas, they're able to also access all of the nutrients and water in the soil that these big old trees are able to access as well. You know it's like inheriting a large bank account as soon as you're born so the other thing that happens they get mycorrhizal but they also start receiving subsidies from these old trees if they didn't have these subsidies they would die they wouldn't make it in the understory of these old trees it's too shady it's too dark they can't photosynthesize enough on their own and so it's a very dynamic environment throughout the life of these trees and archived in their Tree rings then is that history. They tell a story of the stresses and the riches that come along to a tree throughout their lifetime. Um, eventually these young seedlings themselves grow up to become mother trees themselves. And then they you know, have tons of resources they can send to their own seedlings. Well, can these old trees Do they nurture all these seedlings? Can it be a different species? It's like a community, right? With all the different people in a community, like my little town of Nelson, with all the different people, you know, that have all their professions and we interact in that very fluid way. It's the same thing in the forest with all their specialties. Well, it turns out that these old trees can recognize which ones are their own seedlings. They have kin recognition and that they're able to re- adjust where they're sending carbon based on the identity of their kin. And so in the process of doing that, they actually favor their own genes. They favor their kin and that carries the line forward. In a real, in a forest, if we were to look at every species of fungi and every network, there would be hundreds and the linkages would be so dense and so numerous, you wouldn't even be able to, to see that. It, it would be just opaque. So what do we do about this? Other than protesting and chaining ourselves to trees, yes, by all means, let's do that. But there's, we also need to figure out ways where we can emulate some of these more careful management practices based on being on the land and listening and trying to protect those wonderful resources. And all that at the same time is protecting, you know, biodiversity, carbon storage, and all while climate is changing and making it harder and harder and harder to do that. So how can we help these forests? So I started a project about five years ago to try to address some of these things called the Mother Tree Project. The basic idea is taking that basic research on tree communication and connection and applying it in forestry practices so that we can actually look after the basic things that we need in order to have a life on this planet, which means protecting our forests, protecting the carbon stocks that are in those forests, the biodiversity that's in them, And so we wanted to retain mother trees in different amounts and configurations with the idea that we knew that they were essential to regeneration and essential to protecting all the other creatures in the forest. And we also wanted to look at genetic gradients because we knew already that the rate of climate change is so fast, the velocity is so high, that trees cannot migrate as quickly as we need them to in order to retain forests on our earth. To retain forested landscape. We're going to have to help them migrate. We're going to have to help species and genotypes move because we've made it too fast for them to do it on their own. I'm going to show you some of our early results on this. We focused on one particular forest type douglas fir because it's got this big broad range across British Columbia. So these are undergraduate and graduate students and they are the lifeblood of this of this project. It's a hundred year project I'm going to be gone well before it even reached, the forest reaches a teenage year. And so they're going to be the ones that are carrying this into the future. This is the biggest experiment I've ever designed. It's probably one of the biggest climate experiments in forests in North America. So we have actually a total of 27 forests that have been treated in different ways where we retain mother trees in different configurations and compare them to an uncut primary forest. So a native forest, And then we've taken that native forest and cut out different patches of trees, leaving these different mother trees in different amounts and configurations. So the 60% means that we we cut out gaps of trees and left 60% of the mother trees and thinned them from below to try to boost their vigor. And then with the next one, this 30% is we created larger gaps in the forest and left patches of 30%, so just smaller patches. This 10% is what's known as a seed tree method. It's a very common forest harvesting method across Europe and North America, where you leave individual trees. The problem with it is that what we have found across British Columbia anyway, is that about a third of those trees are dead within five years. And that's part of the reasoning behind having these 30 and 60% patches as well to protect the mother trees from dying, from blowing over, or just dying from stress or shock from losing its neighbors and its family. We wanted to track the biodiversity, so we measured everything, like the lichens and the mosses, the plants, the trees, the small mammals, the large mammals. We'd like to look at the birds. and, and also where was all the carbon in those ecosystems? We measured, you know, every stick, every plant, every tree. We dug our soils down to a meter and collected soil from all those different depths. We took them back to the lab and we measured all the nitrogen and, and carbon in those samples. And we were able to actually reconstruct the carbon budget for our forest. So all of our 27 sites then had to be harvested by all of our partners, which was a huge undertaking. And then me and my students went out and planted all of our special seedlings in these forests. And now we're going back and evaluating how they look, what the biodiversity is. So one of the things along our big climate gradient is that we know naturally that tree species richness or how many trees are there varies. And sure enough, that's reflected in our data. Where And this also happens worldwide, that when you have replete climates with with very good climatic conditions there's more tree species and then as it gets drier and drier um, and more harsh you have fewer tree species and tree species richness is correlated with carbon but tree species richness isn't the only thing when we look at the full suite of species and i'm just talking about plants right now all through from the top of the trees down into the soil this is the carbon pools in our forest And so we have, here's our dry forest at the left-hand side of our curve and our wettest uh, climatic region on the far right part of the curve. The brown part of the figure is what's below ground and the green part is the carbon above ground. So here's an amazing thing is that when you're walking through the forest, everything that you see all the trees, the plants, what's on the ground, that's only half of the carbon. The other half is hidden away from site below ground. And that is where our really stable carbon pools are. Those are so precious to us with climate change. We can take off the above ground and, and harvest it and, and turn it into toilet paper, but we need to make sure that that below ground pool is really stable and safe in the ground so that we don't double the problem. If you just look at the raw data, what this figure here is showing is that as you increase the number of tree species in plantations, and I'm thinking plantations here, because keep in mind we only plant one or two species because we're very simplistic with our management. We're always keeping that carbon pool low if we do that, right? The reason for that is as you add more species in the ecosystem, they start occupying different niche spaces, above ground and below ground. So above ground, if you look at this nice picture on the diagram, you can see all these different tree species with their, have occupy different layers of the canopy. Some of them are photosynthesizing in the upper canopy. Some are shade tolerant and doing it in the lower canopy. But they're occupying or they're, they're accessing or acquiring all those sun rays that are coming in there and converting them into photosynthate. And it's photosynthate that drives the whole below ground processes, all the nutrient cycle, the carbon cycle, the water cycle. And what's going on below ground too, as you add more species of trees is they too occupy different niches in the soil. And if you start taking species away you start basically truncating the ability of the ecosystem to acquire resources and be productive and so by simplifying our ecosystems and it doesn't matter if it's a forest or a grassland or a cropland that when we simplify to a few species we actually lose these niches or we don't occupy them and we lower the productivity of our of our plant communities so there's a lesson here for management Okay, now I'm just gonna talk about one last little piece here. And that is, what is the effect of leaving these old mother trees on regeneration? And this is just a subset of our regeneration data. So this is really talking about the ability of the forest to recover, right? It's resilience. This is looking at total density of up to three years post-harvesting. And you can see that, you know, in forests that were intact or where we left a lot of the mother trees, there's a lot of regen right? They're recovering really fast. As we clear cut, we get less and less and less and less. You Well, that seems obvious because there's fewer trees there, but there's just fewer seed around, and they're more at risk of dying from frost and drought, and even if they do get established. The other thing here is that the richness of species, so that is the number of species coming back, also is greater when we leave more overstory covers. Leaving these mother trees isn't not just important for density, it's important for the diversity of the species coming back. Along this axis here, the Z axis is our aridity gradient or our climate gradient. And this is just showing that in a really favorable environments where it's wet and cool, that we get a lot of regeneration. As it gets drier, which is these orange bars in front, dry, hot environments, it's a lot harder. So in harsher environments, either hot and dry or cold and dry. Regeneration is a lot more difficult in those ecosystems you need a lot more protection. So I mentioned how our species, our trees cannot keep up with the rate of climate change. The velocity of climate change is orders of magnitude higher than what trees can migrate at, the pace that they can migrate at. And so we have to help them, we have to move them around. And so we've done that in this project and what we found First of all, is that these warmer genotypes, as we move them north, they're actually doing okay, right? It's warmed up enough that that they're surviving in these warmer climates that we've created through climate change. So our ability to migrate stuff is actually pretty darn good. The second thing I want you to notice is uh, in these other figures, this is the driest and hottest site, and this is the most northern site. That most northern site is the northern limit of Douglas fir. Okay, Douglas Fir is projected to actually migrate all the way up to the Yukon as climate changes over the next century. It's gonna move, if, if it can, it's gonna move. But what this is showing is that it's they're gonna need to have protective trees in order for them to do that. So this is our 60% retention treatment and our 100% retention, and this is the clear cut. And you can see that the clear cuts are not sur- the survival and the height growth is not as great as it is under these retention treatments. How important is this? It's hugely important. Because if you fly over the north of British Columbia, all we do is clear cut, right? That is all we do. If you fly over the north of across the boreal forest, all we do is clear cut. So we're actually setting ourselves up for a pretty tough time if we're gonna be migrating species. This is a very compelling argument for changing the whole thing. And we need to change it quickly because climate is changing so fast we need to shift away from clear cutting in the north to partial retention so we can migrate species so they have their mother trees to look after them to help them succeed in these colder and drier climates and therefore we can actually keep forests alive on the ground and productive and healthy and able to sequester carbon and house biodiversity and my final point here is that Keeping these old trees around here also mitigates fire risk, right? They're not as fire prone as young plantations are. Those young plantations for, full of Douglas for lodgepole pine, it's like you could throw a match in them and they, and they just go up because they're so flammable. But old trees, they have thick bark, they have deep roots, they keep the forest moisture by bringing water up from deep down, and they cause the, re, the risk of fire to go down in a big way. And we've measured that in our project. And this just shows, and I'm, you don't have to understand this whole thing, but this is just like, if you look on the blue side over here, this is one of our sites, uh, the wettest site, and it shows that clear cutting the risk, and this is just risk of fire, is higher in our clear cuts by about double than it is where we retain these old trees. And it's because the old trees are less, less flammable. And it's also because there's less slash left around after, after harvesting as well. So there's multiple benefits to having these old mother trees for uh, storing carbon, for keeping healthy forests, for having a resilient forest in the future. So let me just go through these concluding remarks is that our forests are under a lot of stress. They're stressed out from climate change and they're stressed out from how we've managed them over the last hundred years. And this is only going to amplify in the future and they need our help. You know, we've gotten to the point where we can't can't just walk away. We've got to do something to help them migrate and be productive moving forward. And we can do that by retaining these old tree neighborhoods for enhancing regeneration, protecting the new seedlings coming up, uh, uh, housing the biodiversity and protecting those carbon stocks. And this is gonna be especially crucial in harsher environments where seedlings, just like our babies when, we grow, when they grow up in our little human families, they need our help, right? Um, those little seedlings, we're gonna need the help of their mother trees. And so we, and especially on harsher sites where there's, there's more risks involved. And we can migrate these genotypes from, from warmer to, to colder climates as climate changes. We need to do it, it's, it can be successful, but it's gonna be more successful if we leave the old trees around. In fact, we could be, you know, it could be a disaster if we don't keep those old trees around. It would be like, you know, creating a like a parking lot to try to put your kids out on it. You just don't want to do that. You want to have a nice healthy environment for them to be moved into. And how you retain those old trees, the patterns is all got to be based on the land watching the land, knowing the land, seeing what's going on, seeing how it's changing. That means having people on the land and knowing the land. It do, it means getting out of our cities and going out and actually being part of the management of our forests. And finally, doing experiments like what I've done with the Mother Tree Project is Wonderful for young people, obviously for students, um, they can go be part of it and feel like they're agents of change. The, the, I can't emphasize how important that is. But also we can go look at these experiments and we can say, okay, that worked and that didn't work and that worked before, but it doesn't work now. So we can use them to calibrate ourselves. We can use them to create models, to project into the future and validate those models. And f- lastly, to motivate us to change because when we when we can see what, what what's positive and and helpful then we can we can emulate that and build on it so thank you very much and I hope I hope that this presentation was uh, enlightening Um, I hope that you can see how uh, my early work on plant communication um, and saving old mother trees is important not just in healthy forests but how we can use this knowledge to help us look after our forests in the future so thank you so much
0: Thank you so much. That was fantastic, and uh, I'd love to welcome uh, Dr. Suzanne Samard uh, live onto our stream from British Columbia. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: You mentioned um, how some of these trees effectively have a memory that's encoded in their tree rings, um, and I think, and we got a chance to talk a little bit about some of the other ways that that worked with some of the native cultures, and even the way that they harvested fish. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So, you know, yeah. So the memory of trees is encoded in their, in their tree rings. It's also encoded in, in their, the genes in their, in their seeds. Um, But, you know, in terms of, you know, just annual growth rings of a current life of a tree, um, you know, there's so much information in those rings. And thinking thinking of some of the oldest trees in the world, the bristlecone pines are about five thousand years old. There are trees along the west coast, um, redwoods and cedars that are a thousand or two thousand years old. So that's a lot of history that's recorded there. And one of the in- interesting things on the west coast is that um, salmon salmon which migrate from the ocean and spawn in the in the rivers inland. Um, carry with them a heavy isotope of nitrogen called N15. And N15, you can think of it as bioaccumulating in in the salmon because they're like top of their food chain. And that N15, that heavy isotope can serve, or we've used, scientists have used it as a tracer to see where that salmon nitrogen ends up. And so when salmon are spawning um, in the rivers, uh, we've people have found um, that some of that N15, that some of that salmon nitrogen ends up in the trees. So how does that happen? Well, um, when salmon spawn in the fall, there's bears that are preying on the carcasses as well as wolves and eagles and ravens, and they, they actually carry it into the forest. In fact, a single bear has been shown to carry 175 fish in a single day. And they'll wow. take it to um, their favorite place, um, sometimes under a big old mother tree, and with their cubs, they'll eat the flesh of the of the salmon. Usually, they actually they eat the brains and the guts because that's where the most energy is. And they'll leave the the fillets, the stuff that we like to eat, which decomposes, and then the mycorrhizas actually pick up that salmon nitrogen along with the N fifteen that's embedded in those proteins, and it is uh, carried right into the tree rings and becomes part of the of the tissue of the tree rings. And so we can actually shave off those tree rings and run them through a mass spec and say, okay, there's this much salmon nitrogen in this year was absorbed by this tree. Um, And so then we can reconstruct actually salmon populations over time. And I, wow. I would add one more thing to this story is that the, that the First Nations people um, knew this for a long, long time. Um, and they actually helped cultivate or nourish the forest by burying the guts of salmon that they caught at the base of trees or at the base of salmon berries to increase the productivity of the forest. They would also return the bones of the salmon to the streams to increase the mineral content of the streams, so it's better for spawning of salmon. And also, the last thing I would say is they also had these ancient fishing technologies that really helped to increase the salmon populations. They would throw back the big mothers, for example, um, so that the big you know that they would lay big eggs for bigger fish in the future. And they were always. I'm very conscious and and aware of the variability in the salmon populations because they vary up and down over the years. They're on a four-year cycle. And so in the years where the salmon populations were low, they didn't take as much, and they always threw back the big mothers. And in so doing kept the salmon populations healthy and that kept the forest healthy as well. And of course, when colonization happened, that fishery, those fishery technologies were, those ancient technologies were, were either outlawed or banned or, or at least they weren't uh, learned from anyway. They were ignored. And so then the, the colonization of the fishery actually has decimated salmon populations. And we can see that in the tree rings as well. So it's that's right. yeah, interesting. Wow, that's
0: well, such it's a miraculous story that we have that kind of that much history to understand both not the, just the plant world but the animal world that surrounded it. Um, it's very cool, and you know, long now has. Uh, Bristlecone pines on our property in Eastern Sierra and and learn we've been learning with the tree ring lab and other, other researchers um, like at UNR about how much we do learn out of mm-hmm. those tree rings. So yeah. it's it's pretty amazing. But I didn't know the story about the salmon, so it's yeah. it's really great. Yeah, it's really- and we we have a great question from uh sean from our facebook feed um asking do the mycorrhizae serve only as communication medium or are they themselves originators of messages too are they
1: Hmm. are they
0: adding information into that stream or are they just helping the trees along
1: yeah no they're they're uh partners in this whole complex system as well and so like the the fungi um, you know, they have needs as well (laughs) to carry out their life cycle. And one of the needs that the tree supplies is the, is photosynthate. That's the energy. Um, and the fungi, when they're actually colonizing a tree in order to, you know, carry out their life cycle to get the energy that they need, they signal back and forth between, with the tree, the tree roots, there's this communication that goes on that's biochemical, it's constant. Um, And what the fungi do is they message the tree to soften their roots, basically, um, so that they can enter into this partnership. And the tree uh, signals the fungi to branch and, Create you know we call what we call appressorium, where where they will contact the root cell and actually have a a chemical and physical impact on the root that then the fungus can actually colonize the root system. And then between fungi as well, fungi, different species of fungi, they they compete, they collaborate, they message each other as well. Um, and but with bacteria and the other creatures in the soil, there's a, there's a whole soil food web and they all have these ways of connecting and communicating with each other. And they enter into sort of this food web where they have a food web of feeding patterns. And that feeding pattern is where you know larger uh, soil creatures will eat smaller and smaller ones. In that process of eating down the food chain um they cycle nutrients because they excrete out the excess nutrients and that's what drives the the nitrogen cycle for example and the phosphorus cycle and all the cy- these big biogeochemical cycles are actually based on or dependent on these little tiny creatures in the soil
0: right Oh well, that's amazing. You mentioned in the talk that you you've designed a 100-year experiment, which I love, and there's so <laughs> few of such things in the world. But I, I want to—I'd love to get a little bit of backstory on that. Like, did were you funded as a 100-year experiment, or you know, do you have to kind of say it's a 100-year experiment and then work on funding, you know, year over year? Or, yeah. um These are these are very difficult longitudinal studies like this are very difficult to actually work in the world. So I'd love to hear the story behind it.
1: Yeah, I mean, working sorry, working with long-lived large creatures means you have to have long-lived large experiments. And you can embed in those sort of short-term experiments to try to understand the mechanisms and try to predict into the future of what the long-term trajectory might look like. But, you know, there's nothing like real data. You can have all the models in the world, but you need data to feed the models so that they're accurate. And so these long-term large experiments are crucial. Um, I, I became... You know, quite good at it when I was a young scientist because I was um, I was studying you know forest dynamics and young stands and we knew that we had to have large plots that we followed over long periods of time and so there's a whole infrastructure associated with doing experiments like that. First, you know, finding the land to do it on, and then finding collaborators who can work at that scale, and then of course, as you mentioned, finding funders who will follow your work for a long time. And, you know, honestly, they don't because <laughs> um, funding is usually on a short, short scale, right? I think the largest grant or the longest grant I've ever had is five years. And so, yes, it's a constant process of finding, always finding money to, to, um, to keep the project going. But you know, it's it's like, you know, the more you do and the more scientists get engaged with these long-term projects that are interdisciplinary, it it does attract funding as well. So I've found in this project that it's actually gotten, you know, it was we were lucky to get the money in the first place, but every year we've been successful at getting funding. And I think that I think that that success will continue because the project is a success. You know, we're we're publishing a lot of articles. We're finding out new things that are directly relatable to climate change. You know, I know that the government is directly wanting our data in real time so they can adjust their planting policies, for example. And so, you know, as as we've shown that it's useful and. and um, Groundbreaking, really. Um, it I, I feel hopeful that we'll continue to get funding, you know, through the years. But I do, I think that will always be the case that it's going to be piecemeal year after year. We have to keep chasing the money, but you know, it's worth right. it. Right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, uh, very obviously, with things like climate change, we have to be able to pay attention as a civilization over decades if yeah. not centuries
1: especially since we're short-term thinkers generally right or we at least you know our economic funding cycles are very short term and so it's it kind of goes against the grain for long-term studies um but it, it you know you, we need to do it we have to do it
0: Right. Well, I think finding the mechanisms and the governing systems that can work in this case, um, you know, obviously there's things like endowments that could kind of work, yeah. um, you know, in you know in some kind of term. But um, endowing every long-term experiment might be a bit difficult. But anyway, we're going to invite in Kevin, uh, one of our founders here at Long Now and the senior maverick at Wired. Welcome, Kevin.
2: Thank you. What a great talk. I, I have so many questions about the mycelium themselves. You you you, you mentioned that. Um, they seem to treat, transport resources, that, you know, with a new seedling coming in and tapping into and benefiting from uh, the old elders. Uh, are the fungi actually transmitting nutrients along the mycelium for the benefit of the other plants, or is it their own benefit? And the plants are sort of are they symbiotic, or what? 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 That's a complicated picture. It's not just bits that are communication but you're saying they're actual physical resources atomic material moving along is Mm -hmm. is that right
1: i I often get the question of who's in control here is it the plants or the fungi and the answer is both right they're they're both have agency in this and of course i'm a forester and a tree person and so the first thing i did was i looked at the trees to see you know if i adjust their um resource how replete they are in resources or how rich they are, or if they're fully lighted or if they're in the shade. And I would change sort of like these gradients between plants. And I found that when I did that, it changed how much of these resources were were moving. And you're right, it is it is the resources. It's the main things that trees and plants need, which I, and that's what I looked at, were water, you know, nutrients, nitrogen, carbon, those are the big ones that they need. And so, um, and they are moving them around along what we call source sink gradients, where you have a source plant, which is rich, to a sink plant, which is poor in those nutrients or those resources. The fungi themselves, you know, they have needs too. They, they, um, they need photosynthate or they won't survive um, because they, they don't have leaves, they don't have chlorophyll. And so they get that carbon, that photosynthate from the trees and it's in their best interest to be associated with multiple plants and multiple trees. So that if one of them dies or a whole species dies out of the forest, then they have other options. They have other uh, trees that they're connected to. And so and so they are connectors, right? And they do have uh, agency in how these resources are moving around as well. And one of the ways to think about that is um, that I mentioned that there are thousands and thousands of species, fungal species, in the world. In a single forest, you can have a hectare. You can have about a hundred fungal species, and they have different niches. Um, some of them are really thick, wide, um, almost like very carbon-rich fungi. Others are very fine and um, you can barely, you can't see them with the naked eye. They do different things. Some of them are really, those thick ones are really good at transporting water over long distances. Um, The really fine ones are good at, you know, exploring into new places and getting getting resources from hidden places and then moving them through the network. Um, And so yeah, so so just their different roles, their different niches means that they will have a, they have a role to play in what gets moved around and how much gets moved around. It's not just the the source of sink gradient among the plants and the trees, but it's also the species composition of the fungi themselves.
2: So so the big picture you have is that we have this forest and trees as social beings, mm-hmm. um, and we know from animals which are very social that. Their communication can be used for cooperation, but also for competition. So, mm-hmm. is there any kind of evidence that maybe trees, as you were saying, can use the the, the fungal mycelium to transmit messages of like "don't come here, stay away from me"? Um, it's not the kind of cooperative, helping each other, but actually using it as a means of competition as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, actually they can. Um, so you. Um, I know that some of these fungal networks have been shown to transmit even herbicides or allelochemicals. Mm. Allelochemicals are like poisons, uh, toxic chemicals that can actually, you know, uh, poison another plant that it's connected to. Um, and it, and there's been a number of papers written on that. It's not from my lab, but other people. Um, and then, but another thing that we have looked at is um, is that. You know, we were working in the Arctic and, and one of my grad students, Julie Deslip, was looking at Betula nana, which is a shrub species that is actually expanding across the Arctic as, the, as permafrost is melting. And betula nana, it's a shrub, it's been slowly replacing or taking over the the tussock tundra. And that's because, you know, there's more nutrients available as the permafrost melts. But also these betula nana are clonal and they form mycorrhizal networks with each other. And they transmit carbon from one parent plant to a daughter plant to another daughter plant and so on. And this has facilitated, we think, the expansion of betula nana across the Arctic. And that's not necessarily a good thing because it accelerates the warming and the melting of the permafrost. On the other hand, it also means we've got more photosynthetic capacity in the Arctic. But overall, you know, this is a response that to a fairly negative uh, anthropogenic uh, climate change, driven climate change that that ultimately is uh going to be difficult for us all to deal with
2: if if people in the logging industry and others sort absorb your message about the um, necessary social aspect of these forests and how it could benefit even them in the long term are there new technologies that would allow more selective harvesting or are, are there ways to do this other than just making it more expensive do, um, are you aware of ways in which we can necessarily do this without necessarily making wood cost five times as much as it does right now, which is very high because of uh, shortages? Um, so so, is, so, are there kind of solutions to um, working with this knowledge that you have?
1: You know, I think that we've undervalued our forest immensely and we buy wood for like almost nothing. I know it seems like a lot because we're not used to those prices, um, but if we're really paying the, the true cost of clear-cutting our forests, wood would be far, far more expensive. And so I think that um, you know we, we need to adjust our economic expectations from the forest and actually value it for more than just two by fours. We need to value it for the water, the clean water that it provides, for the air it provides us. I mean, how do you put a price on that? We need to you know, value it for the carbon that can be stored. And already, you know, we're seeing through carbon offsets and cap and trade systems are putting prices on carbon, a move towards that, to valuing ecosystems for the ability to store carbon. So it's a movement away from these very cheap products like two by fours or toilet paper that, you know, we've gotten used to valuing forests based on, you know, these very simplistic notions. Um, And so, yeah, we can make that change, you know. We need to change the value of it. Just like, you, you know... We need to make conscious decisions. We need to make difficult decisions to get off fossil fuels. It's been cheap for us to get that at fossil fuels and we could kill ourselves easily by just extracting it and extracting it. But we need to make these difficult decisions and say, no, it's too expensive. You know, the, the externality co- costs of doing that are way too high, you know? And um, and so sure it's possible, of course it's possible. And, and I think that the way, you know, to change the value, what we need to do is just slow down, right? We're, we're cutting the forest so fast for what, right? We're producing all these products that we think that we need. Um, we could substitute products, or we can just, you know, reuse products, or be be smarter about our, you know, the the products that that are used for building houses, or you know, I, we can just be a lot more conservative, less consumptive. And then when we do log the forest, take our time, right? So that when we leave the forest, that it's regenerative, not, not pushing it to the point of collapse, which is what we're doing now. We're pushing these systems to the point of collapse. And I don't think anybody wants that for their children or their grandchildren or, you know, to leave behind collapsed ecosystems. So yeah, we've got to change how we value, you know, all these life support um you know, what we call goods and services in ecology now, Um, but all the life support system, we need to value it for what it is, which is allowing us to live on this planet.
2: Okay, and my last question, uh, just very briefly, is taking off of um, Xander's um, point about long-term thinking and long-term projects. Are you aware of of other 100 year surveys in your field? Um, And, are there best practices that are being done in terms of like, say, storing data that you get this year to make sure that in 100 years someone can get hold of it or other um, other methods or processes that would um, encourage people to also attempt a long-term 100-year project like you have?
1: You know, there are some very large projects in, in the world um, uh, that, that need to be protected and funded. Um, the FACE experiments are one, ex- one set of experiments, free air carbon exchange experiments. These are huge and they're, they're well-funded where they're actually pumping CO2 into the atmosphere in different ecosystems around the world, including forests, and then looking at the response to those climatic changes that they're trying to emulate. Um, there's long-term. There's uh, long-term ecological research experiments that that have been funded by the USDA Forest Service, um, and those ex- experiments have been in the ground for decades. Um, in Canada, you know, we we have we have joined into some long-term experiments. There's the long-term site productivity experiments where they're looking at how to prepare soils um, over the long term. But I'm not actually aware of an experiment like this one. You know, where we've actually um, started it with a shoestring and then built it to be. You know, it's basically co- covers a 900 kilometer climate gradient. And uh, and so it is unique, and it's unique in that we've collaborated with so many different partners who are interested. We've collaborated with you know with big major forest companies. We've co- collaborated with little tiny community forests. We've collaborated with First Nations um, and and research forests, and so we have lots of interest. And we've built this thing from the ground up. And I think that um, you know, and, and we have like you mentioned data, so. You know, we do store data in um the Microsoft <laughs> with Microsoft, and uh, we have long-term storage in the Ministry of Forests. It's 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 registered as a long-term experiment, and so but it it needs people to look after it over time. And I know through my career, which has been a long career, and I've have many long-term experiments. The data so easily gets lost, even when you're doing the best that you can. You know, suddenly that whole you know first year data is gone. Who knew where it went? So it's really important to invest. In data storage and cur- curation, and then the continual publication of the data, it, it is—it's a—it's a big investment, but it's well worth it because already, you know, in the Mother Tree project, even in the five years that we've been doing this, we've found out things that you know can change, completely change how forest practices work uh, for the better.
2: Well, I wish you great success in the next ninety-five years.
1: Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Indeed. I mean, I think what's, you know, I think a good thought experiment always with these things is imagine if we had this material and it was already 95 years old instead of just five years old, like it would be the most valuable data we had on the planet to learn about climate change, how it was going to affect us. Um, If not a thousand years of this data would just be amazing. And I know, um, we also had a speaker from uh, the Wayne cleff when he was head of the Smithsonian. I didn't realize this the Smithsonian is one of the longest uh, kind of uh, natural sites uh, down in Panama um, because of when the Panama Canal was created, but they've continued to do um, biology down there for over a hundred years, which is very cool. I was encouraged to see in some of the video in your talk that, um, that young, uh, I, I believe either undergraduates or graduate students at mm-hmm. least, are working in your lab and doing, I know we've talked to many, Many of the kind of more extreme explorers, it's actually very difficult for them to get the next generation to go live out in these extreme environments. Maybe your environments are less extreme than some of these others, but how how has it been to recruit uh, young scientists into this field? Are they enjoying it, doing it?
1: They they absolutely love it. I, um, I have a crew of about 20 students out there right now. And many, many students then apply, and I can't employ everybody who wants to come. I have people from all over the world saying, "Can can I come and volunteer?" Or you know, even you know, seniors saying, "Can I send you five bucks to support the project?" And um, yeah, so recruiting students is never a problem, and and it gives them, you know, they're part of the solution then, and and then they you know talk to their friends, and they'll do, and they think of their own experiments as well. So, you know, already a group of my students are saying, oh, let's write a paper on this one thing that I'm interested in. So, you know, we're training new scientists for the future and we're training advocates for the forest. And, and once they get in those jobs, they don't want to leave them, right? Because they just absolutely love it. Yeah, the, right. it, it's, really, it's really great. It's really wonderful.
0: Well that's great and i I just want to close um so i I'd love to know if there's ways that um that we can help you or follow your work what are you doing next what's how how can how can our audience help and or uh what's what's next for you
1: well, you know I think the most important thing is to um support the drive to save our old forests and so um that and and I think that you know, and to tell your friends that this is an important thing. It's important for everybody. It's important for us now. It's important for our kids. Our you know, for generations to come. This is we're at a crisis point, and and we've pushed our ecosystems not just you know our oceans, our land, our forests. And I said to the point of collapse. And we're continuing to do that. We need to pull back, save these old forests. And so if you have an opportunity, you know, to um, to help save the forest so like, like maybe investing in carbon offsets so that that we can um you know substitute making two by fours with keeping carbon in the ground so you can do those things you can push your governments to make the right decision instead of always go for the expedient short-term jobs thing or you know and it's and and to be honest the and I say the jobs thing it's not that jobs are not important it's just that Forestry has become so mechanized that there are less and less jobs, even as we cut more and more trees. And this is, I, to me, is the wrong direction. Mechanization and efficiency is maybe good for the stock broker, but it's not good for the ecosystems. Um, and then, of course, you can invest directly in projects like this, uh, support them because they always need funding, right? The, the project you know, I'd love to expand this project down into Mexico where, where douglas fir is at its southern limit, but we can't, we're just in Canada because that's only where our funding is from and we only have limited funding. So you could, you know, invest in projects like this that span much bigger latitudinal gradients and, y- you know, you can donate to projects like this if you want.
0: Right, well, and hopefully even projects that uh, span great temporal gradient, so thank you for for working on this. It's been amazing to talk with you, uh, and I can't wait to follow your work, further. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: This conversation has taken you along one of the many paths of long-term thinking. If you'd like to learn more about our projects, take a deeper dive into our ideas, become a member, or watch the talks and see our show notes, go to longnow.org. You'll also find the full audio and video of the talk you heard today. As always, we'd like to thank our speakers, our listeners, our sponsors, and our members. Our work would not be possible without you. Today's music comes from Jason Wool as well as Brian Eno's January 07003. Bell studies for the clock of the long now. Big thanks to our production team Daniel Engelman, Justin Oliphant, Andrew Warner, Jacob Cooperman, Forrest Pound, Shannon Breen, Casey Kripe, and the entire long now staff who make each of these conversations possible. Talk to you next time, and until then, keep moving patiently, responsibly, and exploring the long view.